1: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, two interesting segments. First up, Burke Magnus, who is the uh, president of programming and original content at ESPN. He's a major player at that company, negotiates sports rights deals. Um, He's in the room with the people when ESPN is negotiating for NFL rights or soccer rights, obviously upcoming NBA rights, and we went an hour on all sorts of, uh, of ESPN and industry-related topics, I really, really appreciate his time. I've always enjoyed talking to Burke. And we talk about sports rights deals, while the college football playoff has not yet expanded, ESPN's upcoming SEC deal, ESPN's interest in maintaining the Big Ten, their relationship where it stands with the NBA, what they're thinking about with F1, what they're thinking about with gambling, um, some of the problems with the Australian Open. So it's a far and wide-reaching conversation. Uh, about ESPN and its business. So I think you will enjoy that. He is followed by Tim Layden, writer at large for NBC Sports and my colleague at Sports Illustrated for many, many years, one of the truly great feature writers in the country. Um, if you are a sports fan, particularly a sports writing fan, you have probably read Tim Layden's work along the way. He discusses the upcoming Beijing games, what stories are of interest to him, what he's going to be writing for NBC Sports, uh, the relationship between a feature writer and a subject. Uh, Tim has explored that in his recent piece on Peekaboo Street, which is really interesting. We talk a little bit about access and what that means, and then Tim uh, finishes up with horse racing, a sport very close to him, where he's been an exceptional writer. And, um, you know, he's, as he said, uh, you'll hear in the interview, he's probably as down on horse racing as uh, as he's ever been, and that's pretty stark coming from tim laden so burke burke magnus to start tim laden to finish coming up on the sports media podcast all right as i said at the top we will bring in burke magnus the president programming and original content for espn i'm proud of burke to not have an executive vice president title like thousands of people do in the sports media business i've known burke for a long time he's um he has a very interesting job at ESPN. He's been available to people in the media, which, uh, which, which I've uh, long appreciated. And, Burke, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast.
2: Excellent to be here, Richard. Finally.
1: Yeah, finally, Burke. I know. It's taken a long time. You're not as hard to get as uh, LeBron or Jordan, but you know, not so far
2: away. <laughs> All right. Well, I've been willing, as you know. So. Yeah,
1: no, I know. You got you got a lot of layers at the at the at the the mothership there. All right. So here's what I want. I want to start with this, Burke. I want to. Uh, I'm going to read what your how ESPN defines your title, and then if you could, okay. in layperson terms, I'd like you just to explain to my audience sort of what that means in layperson terms. So, sure. like I said. Burke in June of 2021, he's promoted to the new title of President Programming and Original Content. So he's he's sort of headed all the, and that encompasses a lot of things at ESPN. Um, And he has previously obviously had other jobs, including um, major jobs in programming and acquisitions and scheduling. So ESPN defines Burke's job this way. He's responsible for all programming and rights acquisitions and scheduling, as well as ESPN and ESPN Plus's original content development and scheduling. That includes ESPN Films and 30 for 30. In his role, Magnus is responsible for rights holder relationships, content strategy, and cross platform programming rights acquisitions and scheduling on a global basis. He is a key driver of Disney's direct to consumer priority, including ESPN Plus, through his team's close collaboration with Disney Media. An entertainment description. Okay, so Burke, for obviously a lot of people who are listening to this, they are they they enjoy sports media, but they may be not in the business. They may be adjunct to sports media. So, if you could, in layperson terms, what 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 I just described, what do you do at ESPN?
2: Yeah, so I guess I'd break it into a couple of big pieces, right? And and the the primary ones being programming on one side and and original content on the other side. You did say the word global in there, and that's a sort of uh, um, a byproduct of the of Disney reorganization. Now, Jim, I report to Jimmy Pataro, as you know, Jimmy's the chairman of sports content for the Walt Disney Company and ESPN. Um, and really, we look at the, the, the that charge as um, sports content anywhere in the world, right? So we're often in in conversations with rights holders for um And what gets a lot of focus, uh, I'm sure among your listeners and and in and in publications that follow ESPN is what's happening in the United States. but we're oftentimes doing uh, rights acquisitions that have you know distribution either um, opportunities or obligations around the world as well. so the two parts of what I do uh, can be described, I think, most easily as the programming side, which is primarily our rights acquisitions, so doing the deals with rights holders of all shapes and sizes, right? From professional leagues, college conferences, standalone events like Wimbledon or the masters, um, you know and and not only just a- acquiring those rights on a periodic basis, but then uh, our department is is sort of constructed with what we call sport category teams that manage those business relationships on an ongoing basis. And also schedule our linear networks, which, you know, obviously linear environment different than a nonlinear environment. You know, you have a network has one feed, one time, and you have to sort of play air traffic control with all the content that we acquire, mix that in with news and information and, you know, original content and put together the 24-7 linear schedules across the multiple networks that we have. That's the programming side of it original content, which was the part that was added um uh in 2021, um, really is exactly what you said, which is the development um of, you know, and this comes in various shapes and sizes, but original content both for our linear networks, for ESPN Plus on the direct-to-consumer side. We're really not doing a- almost anything that doesn't go across platform these days. So that's a critical component to it. But this really came out of um, you know um, the departure of Connor Shell, who you know well uh, in November, at the end of the year. Sorry, uh, in twenty twenty, um, and you know his a lot of his responsibilities um, got divvied up among a variety of different people at ESPN. The piece that landed with me was original content, ESPN Films, the Thirty for Thirty franchise, and the reason was is that. You know, more and more, we were making original content decisions, particularly for the ESPN Plus product, um, that dovetailed with the live rights that we had. Right where we could, you know, sort of get the best of both worlds, where a property we were heavily invested in on the live side could also have a an original content series or special or film. You know, you take UFC for example, where you see content all over the place from ABC to the linear networks to pay-per-views to ESPN Plus uh, and doing things with them on the original side only made sense. So so it was, it was kind of the first time where those two pieces, the live rights part and the original content part were put together in one place.
1: Yeah, I think personally getting the original content uh, as part of your portfolio is great because I mean, obviously, ESPN's original content for now years now has been some of the premium things that you guys have done, some of the most award-winning things you guys have done. So to me, that's a, that's a great property to have. Okay, so that gives, I think, that gives people like a sense of what Burke does. And again, in layperson terms, Burke is a significant executive at ESPN. I mean, when, you know, if you want to use the sort of the phrase in the room, he's in the room when things get done. So here's where I want to start, Burke. Uh, we got a lot of places to cover because uh, you were involved in a lot of interesting things. But I want to start with something philosophical, sure. if that's okay yeah. with you. And that is when it comes to rights acquisitions, what's your philosophy of negotiation? Because at some pl- times you are dealing with groups uh, and leagues, I should say, where maybe ESPN, for lack of a better word, has more leverage. And then you are dealing with leagues where the leagues clearly might have more leverage because they just might have more bidders and interesting parties. So, do you have a philosophy when it comes to sitting down with these um, different groups of people and and trying to forge out a negotiation to get um, to get set assets to become a to become a partner with whatever these leagues are?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a cliche um, at this point, but it's something I've subscribed to for a long time, which was is sort of the old business adage that a good deal has to work for both sides. Um, and I've seen this play out. Uh, I, and believe me, I've seen it play out from us being on both sides of that qu- equation, re- re- feeling like we, where the deal wasn't great for us, or feeling like we sort of had every scrap of advantage in, in a in a particular relationship. And neither of those things feel great, right? I mean, it certainly doesn't feel great when you feel like you have, you know, where it's one-sided in, in, the, in, in favor of the of the property and and frankly it's never felt great and you and i think you know I've, I've always tried to employ my my own instincts here where where you know you just know when when something um is too favorable for us right and those things generally don't last right um you know uh so um I, I, first of all I, I i've always subscribed uh to that and i feel like we get Best results if if it's in that sweet spot um, in the middle. Which, by the way, I think the middle is huge in those cases, right? So there's a lot of room to operate in situations where uh, both sides feel feel great. I think I think the the, the problems are very thin and on either polar end. Um, but I definitely look at it that way. And then you know we're we're in the relationship business as much scrutiny and and as and as um, and you know, certainly the passion that, that, that fans have uh, for, for sports and sports content sometimes makes it feel like it's this enormous enterprise, you know, which is an ocean liner. And, and in my world, it's really not. There's, it's very small. It's a lot smaller than you think. And, right, so if you get on the wrong side of a, of a situation or, or, or a personal relationship, um, you're going to see these pe- people over and over and over again. So, you know, so treating people well and and treating people with respect, I've always been sort of a low, I've had a low key leadership style. Um, you know, I think pays off because again, if you take advantage of a situation, you're bound to see that person again, somewhere down the line. And, and so I've, you know, that's another thing I really take to heart is, is the depth of the relationship Uh, both from a personal and professional side, being as positive as possible.
1: How is it, if you could, without giving maybe like specific deal points, which I know you're not going to give me anyway, how different is it to negotiate with the NFL, which obviously has, um, it's the most important piece of content, I think. If you were to say entertainment content, I might even just say content. The most important piece of content in the United States when it comes to sort of what it is they obviously have a lot of bidders from both traditional media legacy media as well as you know the 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 fangs or the digital players um so how does a how how would negotiations be different with the nfl versus i won't even name another property to be pejorative a property that let's say uh really could benefit significantly from espn being a, a media partner of that property
2: well, certainly yeah. if the last two weekends haven't proved that the NFL is the most important con- content in, in the, in the business, I exactly. don't, I don't know what yeah. will, I mean, it's been spectacular. Exactly. Um, yep. I guess I would say this, I mean, and this goes all the way, this goes from the NFL on down, which is, it's been my experience that they just want to know you care, right? They, they want to know you care. It sounds simple, right? They, they want to know you care about their priorities and, um, in the case of the NFL, it's always been about, well, it's been about a bunch of things, but it's been about growing the game, right? A lot of, a lot of, uh, entities in their, in their space care mostly about growing the game. And, and, and that is also, you know, um, a, a, you know, a, uh, a, a bit of a code for growing the fan base, obviously. Um, but you know, it, it's amazing, right? It's no secret that, that, um, you know, that, uh, Jimmy's predecessor, John Skipper, you know, the NFL wasn't, you know, necessarily on the top of his priority list. And, yeah, and, and you know, like, listen, at the end of the day, that eventually comes home to roost, right? So the relationship sort of had withered, um, you know, the, there was no, it wasn't like sort of overt animosity, but like, but, you know, they didn't necessarily, it kind they kind of felt the fact that, it was a more of a transactional relationship and less of a you know less of a uh, sort of the, the caring right piece was missing like the uh, the sincerity of what we were trying to do to to benefit the NFL's priorities didn't come through and jimmy you know has has reset that we've spent a lot of time resetting that it it ended up sort of coalescing with a really good story that we had from from a platform and distribution perspective. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, things started getting done, you know, and, um, it became, they just looked at us different and it became a lot more of a productive conversation. So I say that in that really at, from the highest end down, you know, they, they, you know, they want to know that you're sincere in that in, in, and by the way, this is not at the exclusion of building your own business, right? But they want to know that, that you care about their product, that you'll be a good steward of that product, that you will help them achieve their priorities. And in the process of doing that, it'll benefit your business and it'll grow your business. And that's, that's the way we look at it um, for the things that we really um, w- want to participate in, that we want to invest in, frankly. The other end of the spectrum is a little bit different, right? Which is to say, and this is where I think you really, you know, sort of candid and transparent um, conversations with people will, will, uh, you know, will will benefit, right? If it's if it's a smaller property, if it's something, you know, that you're interested in or maybe a little bit interested in, but they're clearly more interested in you and what you can do for them. You know, I, I've always subscribed. Here's another axiom I've always subscribed to, which is a quick no is the second best answer, right? Like the the little guys will want you to, you know, to just know where they stand, right? They they don't wanna, you know, if you drag it on and on and on and on, uh, when you really when there's really not a good fit, um, I've come to understand that 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 people appreciate, you know, knowing if something's not going to happen as much as Quickly, as much as they, they, they know um, if it's going to happen.
1: One last one on um, sort of, again, a little bit more philosophy, and then we're going to, I'll get, I have some, speci- a lot of specifics for you. You've been doing this a long time now, so maybe it becomes, uh, maybe it just becomes part of the, the job. But one of the things that when I think about someone like you or someone in a similar position of yours at another network, you're negotiating deals in the multiple, multiple millions, sometimes billions. And I wonder, like, do do you have to, I don't even know how to sort of phrase this. Like, do you have to sort of separate just how crazy the money is, like, and sort of get that out of your head, knowing that that's just the framework you're working in? Because, like, I imagine when you were 17, 18 years old, you could not have processed, I'm doing billion dollar deals, uh, you know, investing billions of dollars of a company's money in X. So I know that this is the dollar value. But how do you, I don't know, how do you not get so stuck in the clouds on the dollar value? I probably could have asked that better, but you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Because it's crazy. It's not like, you know, you're not, you're not, this is not a $10 deal here. These are crazy amounts of money when compared to almost anything else in the
2: marketplace. It's exactly what you would think. It's exactly what you just described. I mean, you have to compartmentalize. um, It's all relative, right? So it's kind of like you know, on financial spreadsheets, when a big number gets reduced to a smaller number with decimal points, and you realize that, hey, every decimal point is $100 million, right? Um, You know, it's so you you do have to have to sort of be able to, you know, like I said, compartmentalize um, and, and understand um, the relative uh, power of, of, of the position you hold and, um, and also, you know, be able to see through it to rationalize good, good decision-making in, in, in face of that, in the face of that, right. Because you're, you're right. They, they are big deals. They are large numbers. Um, but you know, sp- sports for me has always been central to my life. And I feel like ultimately, you know, with the right team of people and the, and a thoughtful analysis and instincts rooted truthfully in things that matter versus things that don't matter. You, you, you know, you gotta trust in, in, in the process, so to speak again, another cliche at this point in the sports world, but, um, but, you know, uh, but, but, and then as you establish a, a track record, you know, try and repeat the things that, that, that worked and eliminate the things that didn't work.
1: All right. Let's get into some specifics. Um, espn is far and away the the home of college football in the united states yeah fox has obviously a a piece of that property and uh cbs has yeah some games but like let's just be realistic and the reality is that the center of the of the college football universe is espn given that burke um at this point in 2022 Why, in your opinion, is there still no 18 playoff? Why has the playoff not expanded, given it would seem to be such a moneymaker for all parties
2: involved? I don't know if I have an answer to that at this point. Um, And by the way, I don't think it's eight. I think, let's just say expansion, because who who knows, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was my word. Yeah, I'm just throwing that out there. Expansion is the right word. You're right.
2: I don't know. I mean, on on face, I think there's a little bit uh, of sort of, what you see is what what you get. I mean, like I think the industry was, the college community rather was you know was um, a little bit, you know, um, it was a jarring moment in July when when Texas and Oklahoma made a decision to go to the SEC. I think that derailed a little bit of, you know, the process that was being and the conversation around. Uh, And the work, very thoughtful work that was being done around college football playoff expansion. And I still think they're trying to stabilize themselves after, you know, after that to get to what I, you know, what I would believe would be the next logical step for, for, for college football. Um, So I don't think it's a, I think it's a, uh, an, an issue of it's not happening right now, but it it's very likely to happen eventually.
1: How would you feel if expansion existed and ESPN got a part of that expansion, but did not get all of that expansion and one of the games or two of the games ultimately were outsourced to another, uh, you know, another outlet, uh, you know, how, if you, if you want to describe that outlet as a competitor or not, but in our scenario here, how would you feel about that? Just given right now, if, if you want to watch the college football playoffs, you know where you're going right now and that's to your that's
2: well, there's your a opinion. business context to that question too, which is to say, you know what is it? How much is it? Where are the games scheduled, et cetera. But I think broadly speaking, we are we're open to a variety of different outcomes there. i, I don't i don't I don't think we would it's not an all or nothing proposition for us necessarily. Um, we love college football. I think that's been plainly evident for forty years. And we continue to to sort of be somewhat voracious in our interest. and um so that that's I'm not trying to sort of pivot away from that. I think that will continue. But um more than anything, like you know, it's kind of like i got I get get this question a lot periodically when big brand name teams are down, right? Like especially teams that 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 maybe are our rights that we don't have or rights that we share. Like Notre Dame's probably the best example for years. This is not the case. It hasn't been the case for years. But in those in those years where Notre Dame has been down, I would people would call me and be like, ah, this, you know, don't you love that? Notre Dame is terrible and it's killing NBC. And I say to him, like, no, actually, Notre Dame being good is good for college football. Right. Um, and c- what's good for college football is good for us because we have uh, a huge investment in it. I think this is a similar case. We're, we're interested in what the best outcome is for college football. I think that is an expanded playoff. Ultimately, I think a lot of really good, really smart work was done. If you just stop and look at the work that was done by the subcommittee, um, I think it it was really thoughtful. And, and, you know, the information that did get out months ago was kind of universally praised by a bunch, particularly by a bunch of people who don't necessarily universally praise decisions uh, from, from, from that group. But, but um, so you know if we if we can flash forward to whenever that is um you know i'm confident that that would be the best for college football i know there's issues that go beyond you know the media aspect of it that are significant and need to be worked through and and hopefully that that gets done your uh
1: your your SEC deal begins in 2024 regarding the the premium football package that CBS has had a lot of people think CBS's SEC deal might be the greatest sports rights deal of all time. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of an interesting um, examination given what they paid and ultimately sort of what it uh, got them. I, I will ask you this: you may not want to answer it, but I, I this I get this question a lot from just viewers. Will you try to get this early? Because it it um, it it it's very clear that um, you're going to have this deal for a long, long time. You're going to be the home of the best SEC football games. And it's close, but it's still just a little far away in that CBS still has it for a couple of years. Would you pursue, I don't know, by the way, I don't know if they would give it up. I just wonder if you would want to pursue something like that to get that package early.
2: I don't think I'll I'll play a little bit of semantics here. I don't think we'll pursue it. Right. But, you know, there's been a bunch of examples in a variety of different circumstances over the years where you know those things. Things things have gone in that direction. Ultimately, when they're going to be there anyway, and for a number of years, as you noted. Um, but that's not. We we we're not going to take that step proactively. It's a conversation I think between CBS and the SEC, and and uh, uh, but certainly we're prepared if 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 there's any meaningful conversation to have prior to 2024. Although all of our assumptions are is that's not going to happen at this point.
1: Uh, thank you for answering that. The I mean, these are a number of just uh sort of rights holder type questions that people always ask me, and given that I have a chance to ask you this, I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to miss that opportunity. The Big Ten is an ascendant property. If Michigan Burke is a uh is a football power, sort of like beyond just a single year, it changes the entire I think landscape of that conference. Anybody who writes about the stuff like I do, you uh, has seen the power of the Ohio State football brand. I mean, along with Alabama, it is far and away the most um, national viewership team that you can have. Um, it's they're actually kind of an incredible brand. Uh, probably, maybe people outside of the Midwest don't even realize just how popular the team is outside of the the Midwest. And obviously, you know, Wisconsin, Penn State. I don't have to go on these Iowa. These are schools with massive alumni bases and massive fandom. Um, given all that, um, the big 10 is coming up in terms of rights and could you quantify just how badly you want to sort of keep a part of it? How, how, you know, where, what, wh- where does ESPN stand in terms of being in the big 10 business, given that, you know, particularly Fox and others are going to want to be in the big 10 business as well.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, listen, you- badly, I guess would be (laughs) to echo your word. Like, uh, we, we would like, yeah, I mean, we, we, we go way back with the big 10. Um, um, you know, 1966, I believe was, and I know that only because that's the same year I was born. So, um, uh, 66 is, it it was the first time we ever had big 10, a big 10 game on at the time on ABC, obviously there was no ESPN at that point, but we go all the way back to that, time with the big 10 and um and we've been through you know a a ton together uh we've been their exclusive rights holder we've shared you know we've lived through the advent of the big 10 network um you know fox and espn and the big 10 network make an incredible uh, and, and abc make an incredible combination uh right now so you know, uh, we intend to, to pursue it aggressively. We love the big 10. It fits perfectly into our portfolio and, you know, and, and, you know, we are you know, I don't think I'm breaking any news here to suggest that it's really important to our overall sort of college football and college sports business. Uh, People often, we often or all of us, myself included are guilty of talking only about college football, but you know, men's and women's basketball, the Olympic sports that we get you know, in our current agreement, um, you know, also very, very important. It, it, you know, those teams also compete for NCAA championships in virtually every sport there is. And, you know, we own a lot of NCAA championships in a variety of sports. And so it's just, it's just perfect for us. And so we hope, we hope very, very much to continue.
1: Burke, now that I have you here, I, I just will let you know that I'm going to continue my, uh, you know, 50 tweets a year on moving the women's basketball championship game to ABC. I understand. You know, that's my pet project. So I'm going to continue that until you guys do that. Let's talk about the NBA just very briefly. When the NBA comes up, you know, uh, they're, they're, I think at a minimum, uh, you've seen people who are really smart about this say that, you know, you have to expect at least sort of a two X, uh, increase. Um, I, 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 did see CNBC sort of put out a report that the NBA is looking for, uh, maybe three times its current rights holder, but like, yeah, obviously, I mean, like, you know, I could, somebody from the NBA should leak. They're looking for 15 times more. I mean, like, that's what the business is, uh, is about. Um, can you just in broad strokes, just talk about ESPN's relationship with the NBA and, and, um, I know you guys see it still as an ascendant property. You probably like the demographics of the league, but you know, that's every let's sort of forget about the NFL just for a second. Cause nothing's the NFL when that comes up Burke. I mean, that's a mega deal. Like that's, you know, there are certain leagues that when they come up, like you start really paying attention because the money is big and that's, that's on the short list of leagues that you pay attention to when it comes up and it's not so far away. So where, Again, in general terms, what 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 does ESPN feel right now about that league as as we look towards uh, the rights being up in a couple of years?
2: Uh, it's a lot of what you said. I mean, it's it is ascendant. Um, the thing that's sort of underreported um, is the global appeal of the sport of basketball, which we think you know creates a huge runway for their content, um, you know, outside the U.S. Uh, for 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 many years to come. Obviously, there's a the best international players all flock to the NBA, uh, eventually. Um, the demographics are, are strong, uh, and well positioned for the changing demographics of our country. Um, and you know, and the team that Adam has assembled over there is, are so good and so smart and so forward looking, um, you know, it, it's not at all, you know, sort of what can you do for us? It's very collaborative. It's 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 very, like I said, forward-looking, tech-savvy, um, you know, content-oriented. Uh, they have an enormous advantage over a lot of other sports in that they're, um, you know, they're individual players, star, star players, are brands in, in and of themselves. Again, behind only the NFL, in my opinion, they have what, you know, a little bit of what is the secret sauce for us as a national telecaster, which is, you know, the ability for, for people to be interested in watching two teams compete that aren't their team, if that makes sense. Uh, again, nobody, nobody's better than the NFL. I just, I can't tell you how many hours of football I've watched over the last month. That ha- and, not a, and not a single snap for my beloved New York Giants uh, because they haven't been participating. But <laughs> you, got know, coach, I'm very you got about a new coach, though. You got a new front office and the coach. So, but the NBA has that same dynamic, right? I'm a huge New York Knicks fan. I mean, I will watch anything Knicks oriented anytime. But I will, you know, anytime you tell me, you know, LeBron and KD or Steph and Harden or or um you know, any of the Chris Paul, uh, Devin Booker, like Giannis, like any combination of those great players, I'm watching, right? Because, you know, it's got that kind of crossover appeal. It's not just about your team. Uh, So I think that's another enormous advantage of the NBA. Uh, But strip it all away right now. It's a great partnership. It's a great relationship. The people are... All right, if you know what I mean. Like we get along very well. And uh so, you know, like it's it's incredibly important both now and going forward.
1: Yeah. And I think both uh both entities have really done a lot for the other. You know, it's 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 that's been a good that's been a good way, Same with TNT. I think that's been an excellent relationship for it it totally.
2: And if I can jump back to, to your other piece about your question about the Big Ten, like sure like nobody, nobody ever talks about the fact that it's been Disney and, and Warner media and you know, TNT and ESPN and ABC, like that, that sharing of the NBA has been going on for a very long time now, incredibly productive, incredibly collaborative. Like we work well with Turner. It's one of the reasons we were excited that Turner also sort of came into the NHL dynamic. Um, you know, after we did that, that initial deal, um, you know, we, 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 there's, there's a great, um, you know, we sort of know what they do. There's a great spirit of of cooperation there as well. And I think that's also key to to the NBA's um, particular dynamic right now as we sit here today.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Well, like, uh, just as an aside, like, I'm always interested because I obviously I talk to a lot of production people, Burke, like, you know, producers and directors and stuff like that. And while, like, ESPN competes with Fox and competes with WarnerMedia, you'd be surprised at just how collaborative a lot of these things are like on the ground level, where like directors or producers will talk to each other and say, Hey, like this really worked for me. I know you guys have this game later on and stuff like that. So yeah, they in many ways they obviously compete in business, but at the same time, in other ways, they're really resources for each other. And that's how you I Berg, you know this sort of fundamentally. That's how you grow a property writ large. Absolutely. Which ultimately and by the way, helps like,
2: everybody. I'll take it one layer down, like production operations. You know, the guys with crewing and trucks and transmission right. and all that stuff. They have to
1: Oh yeah. You have to, you got to have to work together. Exactly. Right. You got to, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) probably even far more than actually the content and the direction of the actual game product. Your, your operations people really have to work together. You're dead on.
2: I mean, listen, we, we, listen, we, we, we we compete. There's no doubt about it. I mean, and, and by the way, that's fun. Like a lot of us, you know, we all grew up sort of following sports or playing sports or both like, yeah. It's your way to be but a gm and in a like, way i kid you not one of the first emails i or text messages i sent this morning was to david burson who's a good close friend of mine i said congratulations on another awesome game like unbelievable you know so you know yeah we compete but but at the end of the day like you know we don't we don't sort of wish ill will on anyone and if they if they nail a game or if we nail a game and get a huge rating i get the same kind of messages so that's good
1: what i I've, I've told you this cuz i just think it's like it was so uh, you were ahead of the curve the f1 deal that you guys have is phenomenal like you just like we're so ahead uh now again no one can predict drive to survive like you know this is a unicorn and people are so into it but the reality is like you know what it's smart business for you to be with that property when something like that exists um you know Realistically, like, you know, F1 is what it is. Like, it's, it averaged whatever, like a, a million, a million one. What I wish I had the number in front of me, but I don't. But that's sort of what the viewership is. Yeah, it was
2: about, it was just under a million. Yeah. Yeah. It was 900 or something.
1: Right. So I get it. We get it. it's not the NFL. It's, it's not the NCAA Final Four, but it is a property that people are talking about. It's on a, it's on, it's at a time when like you would, you know, you, you would, you would kill to get those kind of numbers on a, on a Sunday morning. And it's just like one of those properties w- which, and I think this is very valuable just in however you want to sort of forget about even monetizing. it sort of what it means for your company. Like there's a cool factor to it. Like if you are the home of F1 in the United States, like that is a cool thing to be. Um, so again, I know this thing, this thing is coming up, but I have to think that in terms of your interest in continuing this relationship, it has to be super high, right? Because like the anticipation, at least in twenty twenty two, for this product, given how the the F one finished, given um, Drive to Survive is coming back, I think a lot of I think one the viewership's going up. I can't tell you how much it's going up, but this is one property I would almost guarantee is going up in twenty twenty two. Very so high, it, you in? know,
2: uh, for all those reasons. I mean, you you nailed it. I mean, um, you know, we we, we are proud on the one hand of uh, I knew Alexa, listen I'm a, I go way back to motorsports like this my one of my first big breaks at ESPN was I ran the motor, motorsports category in the late 90s and, and early 2000s and you know this is back when we, I mean we had we had everything I mean we had F1 we had IndyCar kart we had the Indy 500 on ABC NHRA drag racing motocross supercross everything Crazy stuff like hydroplane racing, if you recall.
1: Motocross was big then, too. Like, pe- there were some really cool stars. Yeah, Bubba, yeah, yeah, Bubba, yeah, Bubba Stewart, Rick, am I right about that? Ricky Carmichael. That motor- was, yeah, yeah. uh, was a cool property. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, Ricky I mean, Carmichael, so
1: that's right. That's
2: right. All I do on my own personal automobile is uh, put air in the tires and gas in it. In it go- so, I am not a uh, gearhead by any s- stretch of the imagination, but I've always loved the competition around motorsports. NASCAR was an enormous property for us back then and, and, and maybe someday again, but, but, you know, so when, you know, we got in the conversation with F1 and, and, you know, kudos to Chase Carey and and Sean Bratches, um, you know, who, who, who came to us and, and the conversation started and they were, look, they were solving every problem that we, or every complication that we raised. Um, And, you know, we were able to, to, to really, you know, under the guise of taking a flyer at low, low cost, sort of, uh, you know, a low risk, high reward possibility, we were able to really put our shoulder behind it. And, um, and, and, and despite Drive to Survive being successful, I, I think we had something to do with it uh, as well, uh, in terms of building the fan base, they made, they, they made the US market Agreed. a priority. Um, oh, yeah. F- Liberty, the Liberty guys in F1, that is, yeah. yeah, I mean Miami adding, is, in races. Is be yeah, totally off the charts. Like, like the, the interest there, I cannot even fathom. Yep. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, we're very, very, very bullish on right. it. And you know, we 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 definitely now that we've been in it for four years, we want it to continue and 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 ride this wave a lot longer.
1: All right. A couple more topics here and I'll let you go again. I I appreciate your time. This is interesting stuff to me. Um, I'm usually dealing with talent on this podcast, so this is a really interesting changeup for me. I want to ask you about sports gambling. And just, again, these are sort of very large questions. Um, you've seen, um, your company, um, Get involved in this a little bit. You certainly have um, gambling-centric programming on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, I think we've seen it more on your linear networks a little bit. We definitely see it on ESPN.com. Let me read you something Jimmy Petaro said, and that this will sort of start my question here. Uh, so this is Jimmy Petaro, head of ESPN here. Uh, I will tell you that sports betting is a growth opportunity for us. Hard stop. I would also say we've been interested in this space for quite some time. There's some narrative out there because ESPN is owned by the Walt Disney company that we've shied away. It's actually not true. So Jimmy is sort of saying that like you're, you guys are investigating this. You're interested in this. Um, Burke, you have seen this, so this won't be news to you. People have speculated that if ESPN really sort of goes to, to use the cliche and gambling all in on sports gambling, some kind of partnership where this is like a billion pop, the possibility of a billion dollar deal, um, at this point, for my listeners, can you just give a sense of where ESPN sits in terms of what the sports gambling strategy is and how far away, theoretically, would you be from some kind of mega deal, given that every single every single company in this space would love to partner with you guys, just given what you represent in the United States with sports fans? Yeah,
2: it's, it, it's hard to say uh, because it's it's a very dynamic environment. Um, in terms of the bigger, broader circumstance you're talking about, um, w- we do know, and and what you've seen to this point, and there's a couple different segments of our business that, that, that sports gambling will benefit. Um, obviously there's a, there's an obvious and immediate and ongoing sort of advertising and sponsorship benefit, right? We're happy to take, you know, advertising money from, from, uh, Gambling at Caesars and DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world, and that's um, definitely helped uh, the the dynamic, uh, you know, in that in in that area. And then there's a you know there's a content filter here, which is now with the legalization and the slow slow but steady rollout nationwide, state by state.
1: Yeah, parlays and all that stuff. Right,
2: sports right. fans are interested Prop in bets. more yeah, and more right. sophisticated information around gambling stuff that, and uh, by the way, and also frivolous and fun stuff that you see on, you know, on, yeah. On, yeah. It's Scott Van Pelt's bad beats and, you know, ba- bear on college game day, but lines and information and, and both on screen and on, on television and, and on digital, uh, you know, is going to continue to, to just roll out, I think in a more fulsome way. Um the, the third pillar is, is the kind of thing that you described in terms of a bigger relationship. And I don't, I don't even, I, I won't even speculate as to what that might look like because I I have no idea at this point, but we're certainly, um, and I don't think it, it, it's any secret in the industry that we're sort of open to that conversation. I think that's what Jimmy was alluding to. And, um, and, you know, and the, the, the Disney filter uh, is an interesting one, but, We've done a a ton of research on this on the front end of even getting deeper into the other two areas in terms of advertising and content, because we wanted to know what what fans thought. And actually, we were somewhat stunned in this research to find out that it was the opposite of what we thought, right? It wasn't that there was a negative to to the ESPN brand because of the Disney Association, it was that the negative would have been if we don't get into providing. You know, sports gambling um, in a more fulsome way, right? Because fans are expected, and fans are ultimately going to demand it, um, and they're going to seek it out and find it in other places if we don't provide it. And and so that that's we're that's sort of guiding uh, our 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 thought process today. But at the end of it, all of those things, um, you know, sort of roll up to the notion that which is ultimately, the halo over all of this is that um, responsible sports gambling is going to provide an incredible boost to engagement with sports fans and sports content. And that is undeniable, and that will help all areas of our business. Um, and so we're open to wherever that takes us. And, and, and the, the only part we don't, you know, we don't sort of have a line of sight on at the moment in, in the strategy is is whatever that bigger deal is, if there is one.
1: The reality is like in the United States, like there are cultural shifts and people's opinions and attitudes change. And as obviously gambling becomes more legal, like I think you're, the data that you speak to, I think will just get amplified. That doesn't mean that like there's not going to be issues with sports gambling because there will be. And, um, and there's an underbelly to this, but... I just, even anecdotally, Burke, just like uh, under 35 year olds in particular, I think they see sports gambling in a far different way than people who are 50, 60 years old. Like, I don't know if this is the right way to phrase it, but there is no taboo for them. It's part of their, especially generally speaking, skewing male with a lot of discretionary income, but like, they don't, there's no taboo to that. It's not underground. You're not like, getting like a, a a sheet with a bookie and like you know putting the money under the like it's you know what i'm saying it's all above ground it's sort of part of society and that goes right to your data i think where there should be a lot of data where it's like well we expect this from you guys this is not like you you should have this right this is what sports is about now
2: yeah and 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 fantasy and daily fantasy um you know content uh, con- efforts yes help it I have kids that are twenty two and twenty. They didn't live a single day where fantasy football didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like so, like they they're they're sort of that they they're trained in a way to have this be a form of uh, entertainment and engagement with sports. And so I totally agree with your with your theory there.
1: Twenty two and twenty year old. That's good focus groups for your job, by the way. Really
2: good. And, oh, for the, ten, <laughs> for the last for the last <laughs> ten years, you have no idea. Like you know, I say all the time. Like my my son is as big a sports fan as you could possibly. Imagine for a 22-year-old person, his existence and his um, way of participating in that fandom looks absolutely nothing like mine did at the same age, yep. right? Exactly. None. Is
1: he, uh, if I can ask, is his preferred social medium TikTok or is it something else?
2: It's probably Instagram. Okay. All right. Yeah. There
1: you go. That yeah. makes sense. All right. Uh, let's sort of finish with this topic. It's a very big one and a broad one. Um, and it's something that you you talk about all the time when you're asked to these very fancy conferences, Burke, that you get uh, invited to, um, and that's sort of like the traditional cable model um, and the growing direct-to-consumer model. So, like ESPN for what many of us have known throughout lifetime on cable, part of the bundle, legacy media stuff versus ESPN Plus. It's now streaming service where you obviously see a lot of their properties. Um, morphing. You are you have for a long time been on these sort of, uh, you know, you're on these two, two paths. You're, you have two sort of businesses and that continues today. You're obviously bringing revenue in from both. Um, so the question I want to start with is, um, can ESPN continue to serve both the traditional cable model and the growing direct-to-consumer model? And at some point, doesn't one have to break? Or is maybe the notion that you know a lot of people, the, the, this is a very fun parlor game, like ESPN is going direct to consumer in two years, one year, three years. Um, but nobody stops a business that's successful just for the sake of it. So again, realizing that you can't give away everything, where do you see this rather interesting debate that's just not an ESPN question, but a larger question overall?
2: You know, uh, again, Jimmy's one of Jimmy's favorite uh, expressions is parallel paths, right? And that's what we're on. Right now, now, um, and, and by the way, that's that's the way we we look at every rights acquisition um, conversation. Uh, you know, but, you know, and we've done quite a few over the last two years. Um, and and we we actually think that at this moment in time, you know the Walt Disney Company has a pretty unique uh, proposition to rights holders when you consider, the whole spectrum of platforms, right? You know, and, and our competitors, again, I think for the most part, all have a de- major deficiency in one of these areas. But but we have, you know, so when we go into a big rights conversation, we're talking to people generally about a broadcast network and ABC, multiple in today's environment, fully penetrated cable networks under the ESPN banner. We have direct to consumer with ESPN Plus. And then we also have an audio network, um, our social and digital, which is so far beyond, you know, uh, everyone else in terms of the um, audience that we aggregate um, on those platforms, social becoming more, you know, branded social becoming more and more important every single minute of the day. Um, when you roll all that up, um, it's pretty impressive you know in terms of the ability to to have a constant conversation with sports fans on in one of those areas so um so uh, where i'm going is that the i'll call it cable part of that you know is 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 really not going anywhere at the moment right so you know to your point why would we why would we sort of proactively exit something when you know for the moment the the prop the best proposition is not one or the other but both and you know on the direct to consumer side for the most part um, you know our content offering has been centered around things that are complementary or incremental to the ESPN networks and it's a and, and in my line of work like this has been incredibly fun because we've been able to you know, have meaningful conversations and do rights acquisitions with a bunch of properties that in a purely linear world would have been, we wouldn't have had any conversation to have with them, you know, a bunch of the global soccer leagues, whether that was Serie A to begin with, now with CBS, but certainly La Liga and Bundesliga and the FA Cup and the EFL and all of that, like in a purely linear world, we're not like, what are we saying to them? We'll do what we'd love one game a week, or we, you know, can we buy the can we buy the Barcelona and Real Madrid games and and nothing else? No, like that's a ridiculous conversation to have. So, so ESPN plus has allowed us with things like UFC, global soccer, college content that, that, that we otherwise couldn't fit on linear, which, which, a, a lot of people care about, by the way, Patriot League graduates. So you know, Holy Cross. Is, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm very yeah. well served by by ESPN Plus in that regard. Fordham. yeah, Fordham. Uh Ivy League was sort of the first to, to to take the plunge on ESPN Plus, and they have the, essentially their own network there now. So, you know, so we've been able to sort of widen the aperture in a huge way in terms of the content that is relevant to drive the business, and you know, and we're able to to hopefully maybe not perfectly every single time but hopefully program it on the on these services in a in a complementary and and incremental way and um and you know that that has been something that has allowed in my opinion ESPN plus to grow pretty rapidly well ahead of our expectations and allowed sort of these these parallel paths to actually be have some running room before whatever happens is going to happen right
1: I'll, uh, I'll extend this beyond ESPN Plus just to sort of like uh, bail you out a little bit. In your professional working lifetime, so however that's going to be, 10, 15, 20 years, do you think a, th- this is non-NFL, by the way, do you think a major championship will be held on a streaming service, meaning the that that one of these big sports, the final game in your working lifetime, is that held on a streaming service, whether it's Plus or, or another one of the, the streamers? Yes, 100%. Okay. All right. So that, that at least gives you some kind of time frame as to, um, as to where, where, uh, where we're heading. Can I ask you about ESPN's interest in NFL Sunday ticket and where that's stands? Sure. From? And, you know,
2: uh, Bob and Jimmy have both spoken about it. And so, um, yeah, I don't know that there's a meaningful update to what they've said, but it's certainly something that, that we have great interest in and that we're, we're exploring. It, it hasn't, you know, these rights have not been, uh, you know, distributed differently in a very long time, if ever, right. In terms of what it has been via, uh, direct TV for, for many, many years. So, uh, and it's NFL content at the end of the day. So it, 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 whatever is possible could be very meaningful, um, from a business perspective in a variety of ways. And so it's a really interesting, um, you know, uh, and, and fascinating in a way conversation, because it, you know, it, it just hasn't been uh, it hasn't been out there for, for a long time. And so, and, and, it, and, and it hasn't been out there in a way that, that the idea, the idea that it could be done differently is, is also part of the equation. So, so yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're busy, but on that one, but it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, there's nothing, you know, imminent as far as
1: i know last one for me and again it's a little bit of a thought exercise and um and i want to get your take on this because uh, again I, I think you're one of the the brightest guys in the business and and you'll have something interesting to say um at this point burke if you're a massive sports fan like I, i'm talking like sports fan the top five percent the amount of streaming services that you have to subscribe to are a ton L- let me let me sort of b- say that In my example here, I'm a soccer fan, a global soccer fan. Okay. So I have to, I want to watch all these games. So I have to have ESPN Plus and Paramount Plus Plus Paramount Paramount Plus and Fubu, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here's what I want to get at. Um in I think at a certain point, it just seems logically that there has to be some kind of consolidation of the rights when it comes to streaming. Because I don't know if the market can sustain people paying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars if they want all this content. Now, I get maybe that's not every sports fan, and a sports fan will make a decision as to, I'm a Big Ten fan, so I'm just going to get ESPN+. Plus. But it strikes me that five, seven, eight years down the road, we're going to see a consolidation of streaming, and there's going to be a finite number of players who have the inventory the sports inventory on streaming. That that's my philosophy. I don't know if I'm right about this. I would like to get a sense from you. Obviously, you are in a position given where you are that you will be one of these players. Like ESPN Plus absolutely will be a player, but can the market sustain all these streaming services because I just I hear from a lot of average viewers, uh, average views is the wrong word. I hear from a lot of just viewers who are like, I can't. This is costing me far more than cable used to cost me. I, I just I can't keep paying more money for another streaming service. So where do you sort of weigh on this?
2: I think you're right. Um, listen, it's a moment of transformation, not a moment. It's a period of transformation and turbulence, which is to say, you know, there, and there's two sides to it, right? The, 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 on the one side, you know, there's the, the difficulty that you, that, you, um, that you describe. And by the way, not just from an economic perspective, but like a navigational perspective. Like, where is it? How do I get it? Which, game? oh yeah, you know, latency yeah, perspective. Which all that which, stuff, which thing yeah. is it on? Where Where do I go? Uh, the, the, you know, the sa-
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Peacock better be yeah. ready for the Olympics. You're uh, right uh, you
2: know, and, and the same. Anything. By the way, this similar thing is happening. You know, on the entertainment side. You know, in terms of um, you know all of the quality content out there seems seems unsustainable. Uh, but but you know, so so that's that's the problem the 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 benefit if you're a super avid sports fan is that um and maybe this is this is more about access than it is about economics which is that I mean think about all the stuff that's out there that that previously would have been impossible to 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 find right uh or to or to or to get or wasn't distributed in the US so you know like uh global soccer is probably the most complicated of them all. Um because there's a so much of it and B, so it's it's sort of it's, you know, they, they they're sort of countering each other right now. Which is like, oh my god, I got to subscribe to eight different things to get all that I want. But oh my god, look at all that's being distributed. Like so,
1: yeah. You're, it's the great. This is the greatest country in the world to be a sports yeah. fan because you can get everything. There's yeah. no other country but when like the U.S. That
2: all the way. I do think that, um, you know, that there, you, I, I would agree with your theory that ultimately there has to be some consolidation it just seems like you know there's going to be winners and losers at the end of the day and, and uh that I, I wouldn't argue otherwise
1: is there anything you want to add that uh before we before we leave here that i did not ask you
2: uh let's see i was fully prepared for the australian open conversation i was surprised uh <laughs> you didn't ask me anything on that but well uh, i mean i think uh, you
1: know the um I think you, changed oh, no. oh, co- wait, you wait, change you you change course. I mean, to your credit, you change course yeah. during the middle of this to give um, to to give fans better navigation, more options. But I think, I mean, you're always an honest guy in this. I mean, I think a lot of tennis fans are ticked off at you guys. And I, you know, as you head forward into the calendar and you obviously have the majors, I think you guys have heard these these cries and certainly you saw it on social media. So I would uh, is it fair for me to expect? I would expect better. At least, if nothing else, better. Um, better awareness for the viewer as to where things are at like at a base minimum.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It it was, you know, it was a moment where, um, I guess I would say, I I feel like we over rotated and, Uh, you know, you know, and we had to, and we had to, um, sort of change the, change the tires where the car was driving, you know? And, and, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, like, like I said, I think it's a moment where, there's transformation happening and and sometimes that plays out in real time and you know you you really want to make sure that you're doing right by fans that and you know i'm an enormous ten, tennis fan too yeah um, um you know like one of the proudest moments of my last year was when we were able to renew wimbledon for another 12 years which is great um, yep you know, in a, in a pandemic still haven't celebrated that one. I'm looking forward to going to Wimbledon again someday soon. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, that, that, that's one where, you know, only a few years ago, you know, the, 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 the volume from a grand slam tennis tournament that was actually being distributed and accessible was a fraction of the total matches. And now, you know, through all of the platforms, you end up getting everything, right. All the doubles, all the juniors, boys and girls, all the wheelchair, everything. And I think that's all the legends. Like when I remember the first time I went to Wimbledon, I, I, I was looking out of our production offices, which was right by, I think it was like court 18 or 19 or something like that. Right. Literally right out the window. And I'm like, is that, is that like Martina Navratilova playing out there? And people were like, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, do, do we have that on television somewhere? Or like, do we have that somewhere? It was on ESPN three at the time, but, but, um, but yeah, like it, it, tennis is one of the few sports where they have a meaningful, Legends competition that I think is pretty cool, but um, but yeah, it's it's growing pains with the the push and pull between you know the full and full distribution and 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 platform accessibility and if if you you
1: have not read this yet, um, I recommend Jim Miller's book on uh, HBO because uh, the history of HBO because um there the Wimbledon deal for them was a massive. Game changing deal at the time because it because people were just blown away that like oh my god we can like watch Wimbledon during the middle of the week because in, in that universe I think it was NBC like you can only watch it on the weekend like that was like so HBO changed the paradigm on this by actually paying and at the, you know you look back on that it was not a lot of money but they aired wimbledon like during right. the week which was incredible and that, they yeah. had uh yeah. billy jean king and like some very famous people who are their broadcasters so it's a great property i mean if you have wimbledon and um and you have access to that as a broadcaster it's pretty uh
2: well it's pretty that's awesome what, that's what tennis is for us right now i mean it's kind of like golf right it's we're in the grand slam business uh yeah in tennis. which is the and business have- to be in. Yeah, and we're in the majors business in, as much as we can be in, in uh, with the Masters and PGA and golf. So
1: yeah, I mean, again, it's it's a great it's a great television sport. And anybody who watched Nadal, uh, Medvedev, if you happen to be up in the uh, oh my on god time's yeah. there, middle of the night, yeah. just I mean, that's incredible drama. That's a five hour uh, that's a five hour play basically that aired on ESPN's networks. So.
2: Completely, completely, which
1: is cool. All right, Burke Magnus is the president. Uh, I feel like there should be an of there instead of a comma, Burke. President comma programming and original content. Um, he's been with ESPN for a long time. Um, you know, Google his name. You can certainly follow him on Twitter. I'm saying this, this is not his words, but I would not be surprised at all if one day Burke Magnus is the chairman of ESPN. So you just got 50 more, you almost got an hour basically of, uh, of thoughts from someone who is, again, sitting at the table when these... Uh, when these decisions are made. Burke, listen, man, thank you for the time. It's a lot of time. Your time is valuable. You go to a lot of these conferences where people pull you in and you you give less time than you gave me for this podcast. So I I sincerely appreciate it. I've always appreciated our professional relationship. I wish you nothing but the best. And and thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
2: Thanks, Richard. Great question. It was a real pleasure and hope to do it again sometime.
1: All right, I introduced Tim Layden at the top, but um, as I introduce him in a bit of more of a uh, quicker intro here, uh, one of my favorite colleagues in the history of Sports Illustrated. uh, It was an absolute pleasure to work with him. As I said, he's now a writer at large for NBC. I I don't know exactly how many years it was, but I think he was at SI for 20-something years. Prior to that, he was at Newsday. He's one of the great feature writers in the history of American Sports writing, and pleased to be joined by Tim Layden. Tim, what, a, I mean, what an intro I've just given you. I mean, how nice is that?
0: Yeah, it just doesn't get any better than that. 25 years at SI is the 25. number. 25,
1: wow. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's see. Let's start here. I worked with you for many Olympics. I worked with you for seven Olympics. I, I think you have... How many Olympics have you covered in person? 15, 16, something crazy like that, 20? 14. Yeah, 14,
0: 14 okay. yeah. Seven winter you- and seven summer.
1: Okay, you are you are you are writing about the Olympics, but you are doing this stateside. So, and you understanding you work for NBC now. So, sort of listeners should just know that you know Tim is employed by the network now. That that is the rights holder for the games. Start. So, I want to start here, Tim. The um, the great thing about the Olympics is even with all the the geopolitics and the sort of the the underbelly. Of it, and obviously, this these games have a massive one. China's human rights abuses, um, Penghua I, I, I mean, just COVID. There's just like a there's like a litany of just sort of negative clouds surrounding these Olympics. That said, sort of the greatness of the Olympics is sports always sort of bails the the Olympics out. Like someone always sort of does something that that is incredible, and it makes you remember why you love the olympics and it and it makes us stand up and take notice or cheer so i wonder for you for from your purposes what are some of the more interesting sports stories of these games at least maybe in the the sports that you specialized in which uh which is alpine skiing um and and some other uh mountain sports for years at si
0: yeah Yeah. I, i mean and you're totally right about the the uh the ability of the Olympic games. And I think there's a parallel with college sports too in America. Um, Both of them are, are really um, undercut by a tremendous amount of hypocrisy and, and corruption, all of it out in the open. I mean, it's been the Olympics in particular, people have gone to jail for Olympic corruption and, and uh, everybody knows there's huge issues with China. I don't have a problem saying that, Um, but you're right that what happens is, We get there, you know, we get to the first weekend of the NCAA tournament with all of college sports problems. And, you know, by by 115 of that first day, we've forgotten about all of it. And uh, the same thing happens with the Olympics. Um, Eventually, the athletes rise above all that and, and give us amazing stories and an amazing show. Um, in spite of everything. And there's a lot of everything in China, for sure. Um, there was a lot of everything in Tokyo in the summer. Um, and that wound up being a pretty darn interesting Olympic Games to to watch, to be at, to write about, to broadcast about. It was, um, it, it, you know, as as Bruce Arthur, the great Toronto columnist, said to me halfway through, he said, "It's uh, it's awful, but it's the Olympics and it's a great product and I'm glad to be here. Um, I wasn't there for those that was in Tokyo, but yeah, but these current games, uh, I'll be doing mostly, um, Alpine skiing. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm curious to see, I, obviously for an American journalist, the overwhelming story is to see what Michaela Schifrin does, whether she enters three, four or five events and how she performs in those events, because, um, she's probably, I mean, right already in the top five all-time ski racers, Um, but she hasn't really handled the Olympics. Um, I mean, she's got three Olympic medals, which is nothing to sneeze at, but she's also kind of struggled with the unusualness of the Olympics and not necessarily from a pressure standpoint, although some of that, but also just from the um, unpredictability of it with weather and with ceremonies and transportation, Um, all those things have cut into – One of her great allies is routine and uh, and staying on schedule and training more than anybody else. And all that gets hard at the Olympics. And it's affected her in the past. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it affects her this time. and yeah, I'm, a, I'm interested in all of those sort of America-centric stories. I'm interested in USA-Canada hockey. I did a piece for NBC on TV about that, uh, women's side. Um, and, you know, I'm interested to see if Sean White has anything left in the tank. And uh, interested to see what surprises pop up because they always do with the Olympics. Tim, um,
1: I want to ask you about Michaela Schifrin. And how do I sort of phrase this? I feel like the 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 dominant alpine skier in a in an Olympics at least if we sort of remove let, let's go back at least you know ten or twelve years and then sort of go back to the seventies eighties nineties like I feel like those people really could become household names stars and for whatever reason and again I don't know if it's less people I mean less people are watching the Winter Olympics I don't know if just the American Sort of, there's just so many sports stars on the American horizon that only so few can break through. But do you have a sense as to why, like that person, like the Michaela Schiffer the Lindsey Vaughn, whoever that person is, why haven't they found the same kind of equal stardom the way maybe their summer equivalents have, like a Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky or you know whoever is sort of the 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 Usain Bolt, the signature star of the of the summer games. Is it a question of size? Is it, a, is it a question that the summer is always going to be bigger than the winter yet? I don't know. Have you, have you thought about this at all? Because it's, that's kind of interesting to me because even if Schiffer has a great Olympics, I don't think in March, we're going to be talking about her the way we would talk about Michael Phelps after, you know, 2012 or, 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 um, you know, his great uh, accomplishments.
0: To me, the, um, the whole Olympic world, And the sort of the star power and the presentation of it, it fits into what I consider sort of the nichization of of sports um, where, and I think Phelps and Bolt kind of prove this rule. They're the exception that proves it. But to back up, I, I just think that in America, we're at the point where basically everything that's not the NFL is a niche it's no longer sort of on equal footing and okay. You want to say the NBA, you want to say college football. Okay. But they're still dwarfed by the NBA, by the NFL. Um, And I think almost like the NFL is sort of the, the monster that ate all the other sports and then all the other sports are fighting to sort of be a vertical product with their audience. That changes on the night of the national championship game in college football. But again, in the same way that you won't be talking about Michaela Schifrin in in April, only the real hardcore college football fans are talking about Georgia right now. Um, So I think the Olympics have sort of, have sort of been affected by that in, in a pretty big way. And sure Phelps, because he was across five Olympic games and just his achievements are, So mind-boggling, and it's even more mind-boggling that he made those achievements seem real, um, which they aren't. They're unreal. And Bolt was the same way, not necessarily because of his accumulation of medals, although he won eight medals across three Olympics, which is unprecedented for a sprinter, um, but also the flair that he had and the way he presented himself in the sport, which made him a really once-in-a-lifetime athlete for anybody who was anywhere from 15 to 60 when he started competing. You're just not going to be another one of him, not going to be another Phelps. Um, I don't think Katie Ledecky got nearly to that level, nor do I think she ever will, Um, and not because she isn't an incredible athlete. And I think people like Vaughn and Schifrin, Vaughn is kind of, she's worked really hard to make herself a brand outside of skiing, and I think she's had a decent amount of success doing that. Um, Shifrin, I think her name, I, I don't know what the Q score would be, but I, I think she has some market penetration, but, you know, I don't think, yeah, I don't think people are paying attention to what she does in October, November, December, January, last year, next year, even this year that she'll, you know, we promoted her really strongly on other NBC sports telecasts and non-sports telecasts. So I think her name has recognition, but I don't think I don't know how much people know about our whole story. And I don't think it's the fault of these athletes. I don't think it's NBC's fault. I don't think it's the larger media's fault because Schifrin's been written about a lot. I, the public is going to do what the public does. And I, my theory, going back to the beginning of this soliloquy here, is that it just, the NFL makes it hard for anybody else to be really, really big. Um, you know, maybe some tennis players, you know, the there's no golfer that's like Tiger Woods. So I think it's not just an Olympic thing. I think it's a sports thing. Um, but I think someone like shifrin gets her gets her spot on the stage in the next few weeks, and, and she'll be really big for that short time. And maybe something happens that makes her bigger.
1: Tim, these Olympics um, are unique, given the obviously the challenges that I mentioned uh, at the top, including obviously a global pandemic. When we worked at Sports Illustrated, I mean, there were times when we would have man, I can't imagine, you know, 70, 75 staffers in an Olympic games. I'm sure even before my time and when you first started there, there were, there were more. The Associated Press will obviously have its contingent. New York Times obviously is going to have a sizable contingent. I've seen um, some reports from USA Today are going, et cetera. But the reality is there's certainly going to be far less American journalists covering these games than the previous games. And certainly, you know, when compared to like a Vancouver, or Sochi or Salt Lake city for you covering this, um, or writing about this, I should say from stateside, what are the biggest challenges for you in terms of not, I don't know if you're disappointed that you're not there, but the fact is you're not there. So what are the challenges of not being there and still writing about this?
0: Uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I was not in Tokyo, um, NBC was willing to send me to Tokyo, and I made a decision not to go for a few reasons—Covid um, being one of them—but there were other reasons too. Um, Beijing, I was willing to go, but NBC made a decision that uh, I think it's been widely publicized. Obviously, our footprint as a company is much smaller in Beijing than it was in uh, than it was in Pyeongchang or or Sochi or Vancouver. Um, a lot of the production, a lot of the uh, all of the talent now will be in Stanford. And, and that's partly a, a technological advancement thing where NBC has learned how effectively they can cover something like the Olympics from a very, um, a very large operation in Stanford, Connecticut. But for me, obviously, not being able to see, to touch, to smell, to, to experience what I'm writing about in person makes it very difficult. Um, it, it, there's no question that you can't produce quite as, um, resonant a piece of content from your, from Stanford in an office or from my own home office. And I'll bounce back and forth between the two, um, but you can't, it's just not the same. Um, but you try and use technology, personal knowledge, expertise, um, everything you have in your you know, in your arsenal, to to make your content as good as possible. And uh, I found that covering Tokyo that way, there were days when I was disappointed in what I produced, and there were days when I was surprisingly happy with what I produced. Um, you know, I just think that the way we write and podcast and broadcast to the world is different now. Um, it's a more um, aware audience, so I think you can. Take chances with your voice and with your structure of stories and structure of any of your content, and uh, so I think being not being in Tokyo, not being in Beijing, forces me to think about what I want to type and what I want to say, and to use my own voice and my own past experiences and expertise in the sports to try and do the best I can. And but bottom line, I'm I'm trying to put a bandaid on a big problem, which is that I'm not there. And uh, nothing can change that, but I don't think it's as limiting as I expected it to be. I appreciate that answer. Here's what I want to finish with, um, and that's uh,
1: your Peekaboo Street story. So you profiled Peekaboo Street for Sports Illustrated. Again, um, when when you were at Sports Illustrated covering your beat, she was obviously during an Olympic Games, one of the most important figures for for you, just given where she ranked in the world and ranked obviously in the U.S., and you sort of recently you you, you looked it was it was a really interesting piece. You, you sort of looked back on your profile of her and you examined it not just your story on Peekaboo, but really the relationship between um, writers, uh, feature writers, I should say, and subjects. So I want to I want to read something that you wrote and, and get you to comment on that. Um, And herein lies a hard reality about the relationship between writers and those whom they, we, write about, notably in the world of sports feature writing and featurized event reporting, where we strive to capture the essence of a subject, constrained constrained by time, circumstance, and most of all, truths that a subject withholds or that we fail to find. As journalists, even at our best and most earnest, we access only a slice of the subject's life. Captured at a singular moment, framed by the emotions of the moment, victory or defeat, celebration or despair, metal or no metal, self-assurance or fear. We take a snapshot and hope it holds. And our work almost always requires some cleanup, occasionally because we get something wrong or much more often because we got it right and opened a wound. And so it's a really beautiful piece of writing. And I think really, um, I think dead on. And I wonder, Tim, you've done this for a long time. You've done it at the highest levels. I mean, is do you look at how do, do you look at feature writing? Sort of in a way, at its core of, and I don't mean this to be pejorative, but I'll just sort of say it: it's sort of people using each other in some way. The writer is sort of using the subject to try to get inside and tell a certain story. The subject is using the writer, obviously, to promote who they are, at least the optics of who they want to be.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. After that Peekaboo Street piece came out, which was about a story I wrote about her at the nineteen ninety eight Olympics, and uh, I got some. Really powerful comments from her father, and uh, used those in a story to tell the story in a certain way. But it it basically hinted at some some um, unpleasantness and uh, some um, less than ideal circumstances in the family. And it turns out it was a lot worse than that, and I didn't know it at the time. Um, but when I wrote that story, um, a friend of mine sent a quote from the great Joan Didion, who died a couple weeks ago, in which she once said. Uh, writers are always selling out somebody. And uh, yeah, I think that's a little strong. Um, you know, my point, my whole point was, you know, I I wrote about Peekaboo Street, that there was sort of trouble in paradise with her family. And she's now part of a, uh, she was profiled in a documentary that NBC was part of. It's on Peacock Network and, it, and uh, where she details that there was abuse in her family um, as she was growing up and after she was grown up and of course that's a much that's a that's a much that's a huge leap from what i wrote um but i didn't know that at the time and my point was it made me reconsider something that i already always knew which is sure you're sometimes you get it right when you profile somebody but you are always somewhat dependent on the subject to open up fully to you or for others around the subject to open up fully to you. And even if they're willing to do that, you're still dealing with that opening up at a, at a moment in time, not across the breadth of time. So it, it causes most feature stories to be incomplete in some way. And all you can hope for is to make that incompleteness as narrow as possible. And, uh, get it right to the extent that you can but and to watch out for that to understand that just when you think you've got everything step back and think what might not i have what what might i not have and um it's just um you, you so much want to make deadline and you so much want people to like your story that sometimes you just keep going forward and and leave things behind and and that's just a challenge and that's something to always fight against, but it's a very hard battle to win.
1: Tim, one of the, um, one of the things that's always interesting to me for someone in your position is that when, by and large, when you were working at sports illustrated in particular, when you wanted to write about someone, you were afforded access. You, the, the, the subject and or the subjects, agents, and representatives saw the value of being fee- of being profiled in Sports Illustrated, particularly if there was a chance for a cover, when at a time the, the cover really had major significance. I mean, it was, you know, there was a time um, when the cover of Sports Illustrated was the most valuable, I would argue, most valuable real estate in in sports media. And then even when ESPN came along, the value of that cover was still significant. What do you think about the prospect of someone who's now 25, 30 wants to do what, what you're doing Do I I mean, I just, I can't conceive of them having anything close to the kind of access you had now. Yeah. I think they will still be able to get the, the star level athletes, but it just feels like heading forward. That's forty-five minutes at a um, hotel room with the agent and/or publicist next, next door. And this is again. It doesn't mean that's going to be like that for every story, but it seems like every year we sort of chip away at the kind of access that um, made some of these Sports Illustrated features just really um, unique and 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 something that lasts generations. I, I don't know. It feels. I'm not saying it's a total relic of the past, but it feels like that's the direction we're heading. And again, as someone who did this at the highest possible level, you can do it. How do, how do you see this? I mean, I think
0: anybody that's that's in our business would would not argue with the, the statement that access has has diminished over time and continues to diminish. Part of that is because there's a um, there's more outlets, there's more ways that you know that. An athlete can go get their own story out, the story that they want out to the public, um, many different ways that didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. Um, there's also, I think, you know, the, the other shift that's occurred is just with the entire concept of access. Um, it's almost become a poisonous word in the social media and content world that access is something you don't want. Because then somebody will accuse you of being beholden to the subject, and that's an entire different tributary. Because I think access isn't one thing; it's a, it's something that exists along a continuum. It's, it's a sliding scale. Access could be getting answers to three questions. Access could be spending a month with somebody. It's usually something in between. Um, and as soon as you have that access. There is now a certain percentage of the audience, and it depends on the subject and it depends on the writer, that's going to accuse you of being um, an unreliable narrator because you achieved access. That access poisons your ability to to look in a real gimlet-eyed way at that subject. I disagree with that. I think you can have, again, access writ large and still be… still understand that the subject is not who you're writing for, the audience is who you're writing for. Um, but, but those things have all become much more complicated than they once were. And I think it's probably, driven, um, it's probably driven writers and publications away from what we would call the straight feature and look for stories that have more layers, stories about a time, a place, a concept, a trend um, into which you work profiles. But I think profile writing for the reason you described, the suspicion, the controlling nature of of, um, of agents and handlers and just just people associated with the celebrity have made that much harder. You know, that's why that and this isn't a sports thing, but that's why that big New Yorker profile of uh, of Jeremy Strong from Succession blew up so much because the access was so intense that and even that one you know it made people wonder why he provided the access it made people wonder how the access affected the writer so there's a whole second level of, of study that goes on with any high access piece now so i you know i don't i don't have a good answer except that i just think that writing a profile now requires that you keep everything in mind that you and i just talked about for 5 minutes and understand that that's all baked into whatever the final product is. Uh, and, and that makes it harder. And I th- do think it drives people away from the big celebrity profile, which you can still do well, but it's just it's infused with a different sort of um, set of, of priors than it once was. And it just, I think the the audience is going to be less accepting and more um, more discerning at whatever, at any profile and it just makes the job harder.
1: Last one for me. Um, we're both, uh, uh, major horse racing fans. You obviously, uh, have covered it for years. I'm just, uh, I'm just watching it. Are you, um, is it your plan to, um, to head back onto the triple crown trail and to write about that? And where do you see the place of horse racing as we head forward in the 2020s? It's interesting, Tim, the, there's been, obviously, as everybody knows, the sports gambling sort of revolution in the United States, just given the legalization of gambling. And you've been able to gamble on horse racing for, I don't know, you would know better than me, a hundred years at this point, it feels like. So, you know, I always wonder, like, will, can horse racing be a part of that uh, that money infusion? And I don't know. Um, it's still great to watch those big races. I think people still are interested if a horse is... Is running for the Triple Crown, but and you would have a better sense than me. I don't know how many people are interested in the Santa Anita Derby, and I don't know how many interested people are interested in in um, in going to uh, Saratoga uh, to watch the Travers. Where is the uh, where is the sport heading forward vis-a-vis the infusion of sports gambling?
0: Yeah, I think that there are there are tracks in America now where you can bet on um, not only horse racing but games. Um, I know at Monmouth Park in New Jersey, you can and I'm sure there's others where you can you can do sports betting and horse betting in the same place. Um, so that's horse racing will benefit from that. So I think that's already happening. Horse racing has tapped into the, uh, you know, the the slot machine uh, dynamic, you know, a couple decades ago to try and you know, put put machines into tracks and try and build their purse structure through another kind of gambling. So, that's been happening for a while, and I think it'll continue to happen. That's a separate question from where horse racing really stands in the public eye. Um, you know, I think that we got to a point a while ago where it's kind of the derby and everything else. Oh, I should say the derby, a triple crown chance, and then everything else. And it's a the Derby and then a potential Triple Crown are big things, um, you know, I, I, but the Derby stands on its own. There aren't that many Triple Crowns. There's, you know, only been 13 in history and, you know, only two in the last 40 years. Um, horse racing has been beset with a lot of problems in the last few years that have no question eroded its trust factor with the public and even with its own audience, and right now they're in the middle of a, the sport is in the middle of a, of a huge imbroglio where by far the most popular face in the sport, Bob Baffert is not eligible to compete in the Kentucky Derby this year because um, his horse last year that won the Kentucky Derby was uh, Medina Spirit was disqualified for having a, a banned medication in his system. Um, and Baffert is fighting that and, and, that's ugly, um, and the, the disqualification is still being adjudicated. But when you have Baffert, is by far by 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 multitudes the most the only celebrity in the sport. And now, essentially, a lot of the sport feels that he's a cheater, um, and with good reason. Um, and it's hard to see how the sport then finds a new Baffert to elevate and make a personality when the public was burned so much the last time. Um, Or Baffert beats all of this in court and becomes that personality again. And is that good for the sport? Um, So and and we also had a situation not to go on too long here, but horse racing, the um, Horse Racing Safety and Integrity Act was passed by Congress, which meant that USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Administration, was supposed to take over drug testing in horse racing, but backed out at the last minute because they couldn't arrange an acceptable agreement with horse racing, um, to, to do the testing. So now we're back to where it's a whole bunch of different racing commissions doing their own testing. And that's not trusted by the public at all. Um, so I, 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 horse racing is not in a good place right now. Um, it's less attractive to me than it's ever been because of all the things I just said. Um, I still love the, still love watching great animals run. I worry about how they're cared for. Um, I worry about the people that are in trust to care for them. And um, all those things make it hard to watch. You know, it's, it's, I've been through this with track and field. Um, I think a lot of people go through it with football every weekend. Um, you know, you know what football does to people and you have to put that on hold to enjoy the NFL. Um, we know that people cheat in track and field and you have to put that on hold to enjoy track and field. And now with horse racing, and people have been doing this for years, but you know, for me, it's kind of reaching a a tipping point where you have to put all that aside, the way the animals are treated, the way the trainers behave and to really embrace the sport. And, and it's become very difficult. And um, I don't know where it lands for me, but it's it's become difficult.
1: I appreciate the, uh, the honesty, Tim. Tim Layden is a writer at large for NBC Sports. Check out all his work during the Olympics. Obviously, his 25 uh, year career at Sports Illustrated speaks for itself. Uh, follow Tim on social media on his, uh, his Twitter account. to be one of the people to follow when it comes to Beijing information. Tim, great to catch up with you. I appreciate you, uh, you coming on today and, uh, and I'll be reading. It's gonna be a little different when, you know, I used to have the power to say, Hey, Layton, please, uh, do this story and <laughs> file it to me at 1am, but, uh, but I'll still be reading and I appreciate you joining me today on the sports media podcast.
0: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thanks for that. For reading. All right, back in the studio, my thanks
1: to Burke Magnus and Tim Layden for their time. If you like these conversations, please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch homepage. Uh, Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. Check out uh, some of the previous podcasts. Troy Aikman was the guest prior to this one, as well as the Boston Globe Sports Media writer Chad Finn. Before that, Mike Golick and Jay Glazer both were interesting. Before that, a future of hockey roundtable with Michael Farber. Emily Kaplan, Michael Russo, Fluto, Shinzawa. Um, obviously there's a lot of sports media news that happened this week. That's usually the case when it comes to the, uh, the NFL conference championship games. You can check out my work on the athletic, um, where I wrote about, uh, um, a number of things, including, um, ESPN's reporting of Tom Brady, which I think ultimately they will be proven correct. But, um, uh, but yeah they're at least as of this uh, writing still uh, still maintaining standing by their reporting but Brady has not officially announced it I do think they will ultimately be correct and then uh, in terms of how they rolled that out there's certainly a, uh, a fair discussion to have on that certainly talked about the um, conference championship games and and all sorts of stuff that happened from those broadcasts including a, just a ridiculous halftime segment uh, for Kansas City-Cincinnati where CBS's uh, CBS's on-air talent could not hear themselves could not hear themselves think as the speaker was uh, was blaring that uh, people will probably be hearing about that in the production truck on that one and then obviously Tony Romo who everybody on this podcast uh, who's listening to this podcast knows uh, who I think is the best NFL analyst that does not change but he and Jim Nance did not have a good game uh, they were off Romo was uh, was really too amped just uh you really wish he came down a couple of ticks but uh, you know like like myself like everybody else not you can't, you're not perfect 100 uh 100 out of 100 and uh, my opinion writ large on romo remains but uh but yeah he did he this was not the, this was not his best game uh, for sure um so check out stuff on the athletic if you're interested in that please head to the sports media the richard deitch archives and again Uh, We are now at episode 180, so a lot for you to check out in the archives. Appreciate everybody listening. Thanks, of course, to Patrick Antonetti. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13. And mostly thanks to you for sticking around. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.